With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. All right. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, this is Jack Murphy. I'm here with David Park. Today we are here on episode 176 with our guest, Daryl Blocker. Daryl served in the CIA, stationed all over the world, all over um, to Pakistan, to Switzerland, to all over Africa. Um, served as the chief of Africa Division and finished out his career as the deputy head of the Counterterrorism Center. Um, so, We've wanted to have Daryl on the show for a long time. We're really excited to have you here tonight. Uh, Daryl, thank you for uh, coming on the Team House. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. So, you know, the first question I want to ask you, of course, is, is your origin story. I want to hear a little bit about how you grew up and, and sort of what the path was that took you towards uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, if I could begin with, uh, with my brother is a, is a man of few words. Unlike myself, I'm a little verbose. I can, you know, when one word is, 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 is enough, I usually choose two or three, but I started the day with a text from my brother and it was on the 11th month, the 11th day at the 11th hour, uh, lest we forget. So to all the veterans out there who are listening, um, thank you for your service. My brother and I served and we followed our father into the intelligence community through the Air Force. Mm -hmm. So my origin story begins, uh, you know, I was a third of four, four kids born into a military family, grew up in the heel of the boot, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, and then moved to Texas, San Antonio, Texas, uh, where I was nine years old then, so going into the fourth grade. Um, and then <clears throat> my dad retired two years later and we moved to Augusta, Georgia, where both of my parents were from. So my origin story is I was a Cub Scout. I was a Boy Scout. I was ROTC in, in high school and college. I went in and into the Air Force myself, served as an 8075. That, that Air Force specialty code doesn't exist anymore. I don't know what the new one is, but I was a, a command briefer and an, an intelligence officer where I served at Osan Air Base Korea the year before the Seoul Olympics. So it was an absolutely fascinating and 
uh, an amazing time to be in in a theater that was absolutely on the brink of war as it is today. Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current uh, leader Kim Jong-un, was literally known to be or believed to be a god. And so landing as a young second lieutenant in uh, the Republic of Korea in 1987, I never knew that eventually it was going to take me to the CIA, but um, having that that military experience and having that background in intelligence, it was a natural progression to join the CIA, which I did in the fall of 1990 and walked out the door 28 years later on the same day that I raised my hand and took the oath in the in the bubble at CIA headquarters. So that's, a, I mean, I guess pretty natural having been born into a military family that it would take you into the Air Force. Um, after spending some time there, though, what, what was it that kind of pushed you towards central intelligence? What was it that even put that idea in your mind? I, I get this question a lot. I answered an ad in a newspaper. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not joking. Um, my, my then ex, my, my now ex-wife, but my then wife uh, was reading a newspaper at, as I recall, uh, an airport in Wisconsin and saw a um, uh, saw an ad in the paper above the fold, you know, big logo. Would you like to join CIA, travel the world, do interesting things? And so I wrote a 1500 word essay. They said, write a 1500 or submit a 1500 word or less essay about anything that you feel passionately about. Well, I'm passionate about my faith. I'm passionate about the Middle East. I'm passionate about history and in international affairs. And so the Intifada, the Palestinian uprising against Israel was, was going on at the time. So that's what I submitted. And someone could see that I could, you know, I had good reasoning and could put, you know, put a sentence together or two. And that started the next series of taking a series of battery of tests. And then of course, medical and poly and, and 28 years of absolute bliss. And well, let's start off uh, sort of at the beginning of your journey in intelligence then. Um, if uh, th there's that term that the agency doesn't like former employees to use, but you went through the, uh, the iconic uh, training institution uh, that, th that the agency provides for new officers. Right. You, you, you can say the farm. I just can't <laughs> talk about being associated with, but everyone who went through the training that I went through, went through the farm. And quite frankly, at that time, everyone at the CIA, no matter which directorate, I was from the directorate of operations, also experienced a, a large portion of their, their kind of their inboarding down at the farm in one course or another. And, and what was it like for you going through there as, a, as still a, a young man? Well, I, <laughs> I made the mistake once of telling my, my ex that it was the best six months that I ever spent in, <laughs> that I ever spent in my life. It was, um, it was, it was fantastic. We, uh, we learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about each other. And quite frankly, those folks that I went through that training with are still a part of my life. They're still a part of many of the decisions that I make and come to, I bounce ideas off of classmates that I've now known for, you know, 30 plus years. 
And uh, I mean, coming out of all of that, you're now a, uh, I mean, they were, they were still case officers at that time rather than ops officers. Right. 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 And, and where, where was the first place you landed? So I, I landed in West Africa after spending six months in French, um, which was really interesting because my, my middle name is Maurice. So uh, when I would deal with the French, I would say, uh, Maurice comme, comme Chevalier. Maurice Chevalier is a very famous French actor. And uh, of course, no one is ever going to hear my French and mistake me for being French, but <laughs> I worked hard at it. Um, it was just a skill, just like anything else. And, and, and quite frankly, I loved it. But uh, uh, West Africa and probably one of the poorest countries on the planet. And that assignment was truncated because my now 32-year-old son got sick and almost died there. So oh, man. they didn't have the medical care to, um, you know, to, to get us through the second year. So the family went back home and I stayed out there several months, you know, closing off things and making sure uh, everything was okay before coming back. And I think essentially launching me into what was that made my success through the rest of the, uh, through the organization where I was assigned to the Somali working group about a month before Black Hawk Down. Wow. So what was what was going on at the Somali Working Group at, at that point in time when you showed up? So by the time I arrived in the fall of 1993, yes, in the fall of 1993, we had already gone back in. Uh, President Bush, uh, uh, the 41, uh, put us into Somalia. It was a humanitarian mission that eventually, of course, turned into the hunt for Ideed, and we all know how that ended. Right. Um, ended on the 31st of March, 1994, and I spent January and half of February, uh, several months after uh, the incident, uh, on the ground in Mogadishu, as quite frankly, if I recall, the youngest um, and most junior case officer to actually have that experience. I'd be really curious because, um, I mean, we've heard quite a bit about the the incident, uh, Operation Gothic Serpent, from a military point of view. What what was it like? What did you see from from your perspective as a as a young CIA officer? Um, you know, kind of before, during, and after the the incident, and you know, sort of America's presence in Somalia. Well, the Somali Working Group wasn't that large, as I recall. There may have been less than ten of us for certain. Um, so it wasn't. A, a, a big effort from the agency's perspective. Then, of course, as soon as uh, Black Hawk Down happens, now what was, you know, yesterday's news is front page news uh, all day, every day. Right. And because of my experiences as a command briefer for a very difficult three-star general, as a young, literally straight out of Intel school, uh, general in, in Korea, and also serving in a... Um, uh, what we call a, a deployable unit. We were assigned to the 82nd Airborne out of my my mobility unit in um, in Texas. So I was constantly at war, either in the Korean Peninsula or in the hunt for um, um, Manuel Noriega. I was maybe 200 meters away from him when he got on the back of that 141. Oh wow! In, in early February of um, of 1990. Yes early February of 1990. So I had come from war experiences 
the entire year in Korea was one long military exercise. So by the time I got to the Somali working group, it was, I won't say it was, you know, uh, secondhand, but it was natural right. to me. And I briefed every station chief that went out, all the senior military folks that went out between September of 93 and uh, March of 94. They were all briefed by CIA and I was the person that was the mouthpiece. So I saw a lot. Um, I saw folks that were uh, just amazing. You know, we made mistakes just like we have in a lot of places, but the mistakes that we made were not, uh, didn't, didn't result in, in Black Hawk Down and in, in the Black Hawk situation, not yeah. from them, from the agency perspective anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm nursing a little bit of cold here, so I'm going back and forth between my tea and my, and my, my bourbon. That sounds like the right way to do it. Unless you do the hot toddy and, and put it all together. <laughs> I, I, I thought about that, but um, yeah. So uh, I, I, ahead, I, I was kind of curious. So when you were in Somalia, you said you were on the ground in Mogadishu, even after the event, how, how were you guys, uh, conducting operations at that point in time? Cause I imagine there was, you know, a lot of activity, uh, local activity. A, a lot of activity. Um, mostly we were winding down operations. Um, there wasn't a lot of agent meetings going on. They were still being held. Um, it was really interesting because as a, again, my first tour in West Africa was truncated. So I didn't get to get the full experience of being, you know, a CIA ops officer in the field. But by the time I got to Somalia, I had a um, a force recon unit that was assigned essentially to me uh, to protect me. Um, I went out with them quite a bit, and I learned a lot about how they went about doing doing business. They protected me; I protected them. But it was it was amazing flying with with people who were former CAG, uh, former uh, Delta guys that were now working for the agency and taught me a lot about uh, air to ground stuff, taught me a lot about how uh, the agency and the, uh, and the special, special ops world work together. So I, I got steeped very, very quickly and under dire circumstances. So that's for me uh, kind of sealed, not my fate, but right. sealed my, my attention and my focus on counterterrorism for essentially the rest of my career. When, when you're in, whether it was before or after, but when you're in a place that is semi to non-permissive, how do you make the decision? Is it left up to you or who makes the decision to, all right, we're going to roll out with three up-armored, uh, you know, land cruisers, or we're going to roll in thin skins, you know, all, you know, all kind of, you know, uh, camouflaged up and blending in? Um, essentially, it's done collectively. You know, the people that we have there are, are really bright. Yeah. They've been there before. Um, they know what the limitations are. It's based on the environment, you know, on the moment in which you're about to roll. But collectively, it's a team. But as if it was a, you know, a Title 50 uh, operation, then, of course, it was it was the agency yeah. that was deciding that. Um, but we we always, always 
made sure that if the uh, if the operators, the military guys had any discomfort or any questions or concerns, they their voice was just as valid as anyone. Right. No, that's fascinating. So then what uh, what happened after Somalia for you? So Somalia, I came back and then I did I did an, a domestic assignment because my uh, my son who who had the medical issue, you have to be medically cleared in order to go back overseas. So we knew it was going to take a time. And I, I, I didn't want to stay in the Washington area. So they sent me to the Midwest where I end up uh, doing the same thing, working counterterrorism uh, the two years prior to the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, working very closely with the FBI, working very closely with the FBI and CIA headquarters. So essentially it went from, you know, from West Africa to Somalia to um, to the Midwest and all focusing on on terrorist threats. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like for the CIA working in America? Because it's very different, right? It is very different. And we don't really talk about the 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 national resources side of our house outside of, you know, outside of the intelligence community. But the NR portion actually existed prior to even OSS. So General Donovan, when he was the uh, the coordinator of information, the COI, which later became the uh, the Office of Strategic Services, he recognized that corporate America was actually living in some of the countries that we were about to go to war with. There were American companies in Germany. There are American companies in Japan. There are American companies in Italy. So he tapped into an essentially an existing um, kind of business and then brought it into the OSS. And as I understand that, that is what NR uh, division became. Um, in today's paradigm, it of course is always done in concert with our, our FBI uh, brethren and, and colleagues. I know people still want to depict, you know, friction between the CIA and FBI. And I honestly never saw any of that personally in mm -hmm. all of the time that, that I was in. Um, I know personalities clash, but I had nothing but much respect for, for FBI. So working with them against all the threats that against the homeland, of course, you're still trying to find what we call the hard targets, the Russians, the Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, terrorists, those, those type of folks. They're not just abroad. They're operating right here in the United States. And because we have the natural experience with and background, we partner with the FBI in terms of chasing those those folks within our within our um, you know, within our territory. And when you when you got to NR for your, you know, for the first tour, were you surprised by the amount of activity that there was? Were you surprised by the amount of activity there wasn't? Uh, what were your general impressions? It, I'm not surprised by much. Okay. Um, I on, honestly, I, I wasn't surprised. Um, I was surprised at the breadth and depth of the involvement of the CIA, of course, because when you grow up, you never hear about the CIA operating domestically unless you hear the one case, which is Watergate. And right. that was an anomaly and that wasn't really CIA sanctioned. And, you know, so people think that we're here chasing Americans. I can put people's, you know, minds at ease. 
the CEO are not that interesting to the CIA for us to be worrying about and, and following you on, on American soil because we don't go after Americans. Right. Unless, of course, you're ISIS or Al Qaeda or something else, you know, that, uh, or people who are, you know, selling out our country to the Russians or the Chinese or whatever. So, when, are, are there, a, obviously, there is work for you guys. Are there a lot of threats that, get stopped by the CIA and the FBI, would people, would people, would people be concerned uh, if they found, I, like, I don't know what the scope of the threat is. Honestly, the scope of the threat, it's really hard to tell. It's hard to disprove a negative. Okay. Um, and you never know when something happens in Manila that, stop something from happening in Philadelphia. And right. again, I just threw two places uh, out of, you know, out randomly. Right. So I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can answer okay. that question, but I can make sure that people's minds are at ease that there are professionals who wake up every single day and their only job is to make sure that you don't have to deal with the things that we have to deal with, right? Or you don't have to be concerned about the things that um, that we have to have to think about. Now, last week I was at my alma mater, University of Georgia, where I addressed a number of different groups, including uh, veterans, some who are active duty, some who are former, and some who are uh, in reserves. And I got that I got that very uh, I got a very similar uh, very similar question to that. And the other students have no idea what these students have been through, mm -hmm. that they've served in Iraq, that they've served in Afghanistan, that they have almost for their entire lives done nothing but try to protect, you know, the rest of Americans from seeing the ugliness that we've had to see abroad. And, and um, I spoke about working for six different administrations. I worked for every president from Reagan to Trump. And quite frankly, all six administrations, um, I gave them all a pass that first year because even presidents don't really recognize how dangerous this world is. Right. And when you start to see just everything, um, and it takes them all a while. Some of them never get it, but most do. And at some point, these threats are not Hollywood created. These threats are not something that uh, somebody has just made up. These aren't conspiracy theories. These are real, real world problems or real world people. And there are people out there who take some sense of pride in destroying or bringing down others. Those are the people that we try to take off the playing field. So you say the presidents, you gave him a pass that first year, but you felt like no, that, that the administration, that whoever was sitting in, the, in that seat at that time, right. That, that they were serious about what you needed to do. Um, yes. For the most part. Okay. Yes. So, and, and that was four Republicans and two Democrats Yeah. and intelligence officers. And I'm sure you in 175 episodes, you've spoken to many have to leave their political affiliations outside the discussion, just right. on the outside. Right. You can vote one way or the other. You can be an independent like myself. 
I voted Republican, I voted Democrat, I vote for for who I think is the best person for that particular job at that particular time. Right. Um, but I think I think five of the six got it. Okay. <laughs> and I won't I won't get into the one that didn't. Okay. Um so then uh so you did your NR2. Are there any st- stories from there that you want to tell or can tell, or should we move on to the, the next phase of your career? Yeah, we can move on. Okay. <laughs> so where, where was the next station then? Um, uh, so after, after the domestic one, um, North Africa, um, and then back to West Africa. And then, so I had three consecutive ones, uh, two in French-speaking places where I was able to solidify my language that got uh, disrupted by my truncated first tour. So by the time I left my my third, my my fourth, um, my fourth tour, I felt that I understood what I really needed to do and how to go about doing that. And then the agency rewarded me with my first field assignment as a commander. And it just happened to be 2000 to 2002. And of course, we all know what happened on 9-11 of 2001. So again, chasing, you know, uh, in my, my, if I had an expertise, I would say it was North Korea, Iran, terrorism, and by extension from North Korea and Iran, counterproliferation. Um, so <clears throat> being pulled back into the, in the counterterrorism world in, in West Africa and walking in to our counterparts and basically saying, you know, gentlemen, life as we, as we knew it before now doesn't exist and we need to come together and figure out how to, how to stop this, this from spreading this virus called Al Qaeda. Before we hit uh, 9-11 and, and the, the war on terror, I would like to ask you a little bit about your, your time serving as a as an ops officer in Africa. And I mean, well, first off, let's talk a little bit about Africa itself. Africa, I know you know all you know far more about this than I do, Daryl. But Africa is a big continent, a lot of diversity across that continent, uh, more ethnic groups than any other continent in the world, um, probably more spoken languages than any other place yep. in the world. Could you sure. tell us a little bit about your interactions on the African continent in these various countries? Um, and what it was like there for you to work as an ops officer? It was the most amazing experience that just, I, I allowed my, it allowed me to, to have my children grow up in different cultures and different countries as my parents uh, travel allowed me. And for my, for my two kids to grow up in countries where everyone they saw from the president to bank presidents to the guy who was homeless on the street and all of them were black and there was no judgment. There was no you're less than or greater than or any of that. I think that was important to me as, 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 a, as a black father. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to my kids to kind of see that. But in terms of uh, the work there, the best in the world. Um, it's kind of like the Wild West, no matter where you were, uh, North, Northeast or, or West, where I served, they were all pretty much the same. But I think people lose sight of how big 
that continent is. So I live in California now, and I've lived in Texas many times. And my first assignment, the country was larger than California and Texas combined. But when you see it on the map, it's like that big. And you can fit three continental United States inside of the African continent. Um, it is immense. Wow. It is huge. Culturally, it's diverse. The music, the food, the people, um, the smells, the everything about it was, to me, a perfect place to be, raising a family. Even <laughs> I lived in places where we drank out of, um, you know, filtered water yeah. for literally the first 10 years of my kid's life. And I remember leaving. I remember we had to transit Switzerland uh, in between assignments. And um, my daughter saw me brushing my teeth with the uh, with the tap water. And she's like, no, daddy, don't use that water. <laughs> she, she only knew that water couldn't be couldn't be drank unless it was filtered or boiled. <laughs> and I remember telling, I said, no, baby, you can drink this water. And then about two or three minutes later, she and her brother in there with the tap, literally just drinking handfuls of water out of the sink because they never could before. Yeah. It never dawned on them that they could like pour their own glass out yeah. of the faucet. And, you know, some people might see that story as sad. It, it wasn't. She knew, no, no, daddy, don't yeah. brush your teeth with that water. That was her only thought. Not bad. It's just, you just don't do that. Right. That's right. also got to give them a, I imagine a great appreciation for what people in other countries go through mm -hmm. and don't have compared yes. to what we do growing up, you know, growing up here or living here. Absolutely. They've, they've seen, they've seen real poverty, right? Not seeing that there isn't real poverty here in the United States. There is just like there is anywhere else in the world, but true to your core poverty they've seen and witnessed and we always made sure that we adopted a, an orphanage or a local school or something where my kids could see the difference between the education that they were receiving and then the village kids that were mm -hmm. receiving um, you know, their education so that they would know that you are privileged. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so at the same time, you're cutting your teeth as a operations officer Right. And so uh, where were you when 9-11 struck at that time? Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And what, what, how did, what was that day like for you at the station when you walked into work? Well, um, my ex was a teacher at the school. And I remember picking her up and a, the headmaster for the school was this very small Filipina woman who was just an adorable person. She came running out to my car and I mean, just this look of, I mean, you've, you've seen fear before. She had real fear in her eyes and I was thought something had happened at the school, something had happened. And she was just rambling on about, you have to go home and, and turn on the TV, go home and turn on the TV. So by the time uh, she and I got into the car and drove home, got down and sat in front of the, the television. Within minutes, the second tower was hit. And like much of the world, I was um, in shock. It's still shocking today. 
and it changed it changed everything i for for you i mean specifically and, and for you know your colleagues what changed for you guys it made it real you know when when you're chasing guys that you know are bad guys that you know are intending to do harm to others and you can hear about a car bombing here or a, a suicide vest blowing up there but when it's brought to your shores when it's brought to you know to your home whether you're from new york or not if you're an american that's that's sacred and i think it was uh, validation that we were chasing the right people. Mm -hmm. It was validation that these people intended to, to, to do us harm. It brought us together as, as a family. Um, this was 10 years after the, the, the fall of the, of the Soviet Union. So this was a transition, transition time, you know, the, the, the great, you know, the big bear didn't really exist anymore and now this new threat is out there and it wasn't it wasn't like a lot of people think that you know the agency didn't know where it stood or didn't have a mission i never felt that working on the african continent because we did everything you know we chased russians we chased chinese we chased north koreans we chased terrorists we traced all the people that we knew wanted to you know, uh, it harm us in some way, economically, pol politically, militarily, whatever it happened to be. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I remember reading, maybe it was in uh, Milt's book, actually, uh, talking about how one of the big reasons why we have such a presence in Africa is because we were having, I mean, recruiting people in Moscow is almost impossible, but we could try to recruit their people who are stationed at Russian embassies and in places around Africa. Right. Milt, Milt Bearden? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's, that's all true. You know, you, you can't recruit a Russian inside of Russia. It would be foolhardy. Um, so yeah, most of them are, are recruited outside of Russia. But we, you know, we moved into stations. Most of the African nations gained independence between 1959 and 1961. Uh, Angola was, was kind of an exception to that. It was, mid to mid to late 70s um but we wanted to be there because the russians were expanding mm -hmm. um most of the most of the young african nations didn't didn't they wanted to distance themselves as much as they could from their european colonizers where they were portuguese or british or french and they were kind of it was a natural a natural kind of segue for them to be Marxist or to be Leninist mm -hmm. or to be communist, except for the first leader of, um, of Ghana, who, uh, of, no, the first leader of Ghana basically told, said, we look neither East nor West. We look forward. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, I thought that was genius. It was his way of telling the Americans that, listen, we we're going to have probably some ties with the Russians and telling the Russians that, yes, we're going to have some ties with the Americans, but we're going to chart our own our own way forward. And then post 9-11, I mean, for you, were you seeing or did you feel that this was sort of an escalation that you had? What was it? Ninety ninety seven or ninety eight, the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania of our embassies yes. there. 
uh, USS yes. Cole happens in Yemen, of course, but in that neighborhood. Um, and it was, was 9-11, did you see it as a series of escalating events leading up to this? Absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. Well, I mean, honestly, that um, that started in, in Mogadishu. Al-Qaeda itself claims its first punch in the nose of the Americans was they trained the folks who were responsible for shooting down the helicopters and desecrating our soldiers in Somalia. That's Al-Qaeda claims that. And months be, and that was in October. In January, they attacked the World Trade Center for the first time. Mm-hmm. That was January 1993. I think seven or eight people died. Um, but then they said, we're coming back. And we knew they were coming back. And mm-hmm. there was a small group of people who did nothing but try and figure out when they were coming back. And unfortunately, we weren't able to stop it from happening. Right. And so now post 9-11, I mean, is it is it game on? What what was the next what was the job for Daryl? Um, honestly, some people went, you know, swung so hard, swung so hard towards the counterterrorism target that when you did work other targets, um, you always didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. So you had to make sure that you were doing very very niche and specific things, but um, it didn't change. It didn't change what I did. I I was never a one trick pony. I get bored doing any one thing. I never stopped doing the terrorist target, but I also never stopped chasing Iranians. I never stopped being interested in Kim Il-sung and his regime, whether it was him or his son or his grandson. Right. Um, So no, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't change it that much for me, other than the fact that I kind of been in that game for about eight years mm-hmm. by that point. And I think I maybe knew a little bit more than others and certainly not as much as, as uh, some of my fellow folks in the intelligence community, but it was never far from my thoughts. It was never far from uh, trying to track down the perpetrators of the Dar Salaam and, and Nairobi embassy bombings. I had friends that, uh, uh, that, that died in, in Kenya I had a classmate who died at the Pentagon on 9-11. This wasn't something that was, um, it wasn't theoretical. Right. It was real. It's very close to you. Very personal. Yes. Yeah. Dave, do you want to give a shout out to our uh, sponsor? Yeah. So we want to uh, thank our sponsor, our, our longtime sponsor friend, uh, Sap Gear. Check out their website, sapgear.com. They have a lot of cool stuff. Tonight we're going to talk about the wedget. Uh, if you ever need to keep a door open. Um, and under any circumstances, whether you're on a tactical team, an EMS, or if you're just moving, they have these awesome little blocks with this uh, like thermal coated plastic uh, or rubber uh, rubber um, to keep them slipping. This will go over uh, a hinge pin so you can actually stick it in your door to keep it from shutting. It goes over the door and it wedges under the door. So uh, they're super inexpensive. They are really durable. And you should have a couple of these in your toolkit at home. And check out the stuff at Sap Gear anyway. They have phenomenal stuff there. Uh, a lot of fun stuff to play around with. Great gifts for people. Um, especially people who are interested in like the military intelligence career. They have just a lot of fun stuff to play with. And some really important stuff to have uh, to potentially save your life someday. Um, and so it's uh, sapgear.com. It's team. Team for 15% off. Uh, that's sapgear.com, team 
for 15% off your first order, right, D? Okay. Um, thanks, everybody, and, and thanks for being bearing with us, Daryl. Um, so uh, oh, I should have. No, they're great. I mean, if you've ever, if you need to, everybody has to keep a door open sometime. And you, and you always try to wedge the, something the, under the, it that doesn't, yeah. Literally, the door that leads to my balcony is one of these really heavy doors that every time someone pushes it, they're, they're not really, sh I'm like, no, no, you have to manhandle this door. <laughs> I cannot put anything under that door that keeps it open. So... I will be investing in uh, a couple of people. I'll tell you what, we will send you this one. Yeah, I'd be happy uh, to. And, and, and yeah, nice. we're going to send you that one. All right. All right. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So uh, you continue doing your job. Uh, but now we're getting into the war on terror years. Um, right. What, what was the, the next kind of step in your, your career's trajectory from there? So I kind of break up my career, my 28 years, into three distinct um, kind of phases. The first nine years, of course, was spent doing case officer work on the streets, recruiting spies, producing intelligence, meeting folks, you know, hearts and minds, that type of stuff. And it was, there's very little that comes even close to matching how amazing and how fantastic that was. That was like an exhilarating experience. Yes. Now, the next phase, of course, was me moving from being, you know, on the field to managing folks who were doing those things. That was a rough patch for me. <laughs> now, personally and professionally, I hit one roadblock, but I was really hard on myself and I held on to a lot for many, many years after, after that. And just as an example, I mentioned that I was in, in, um, in Nigeria during 9-11 and the organization sent me to a leadership class afterwards where I had to do 360 feedback and the 360 feedback basically said that I was a failed leader for all practical purposes. Um, now by all the, by all the markers of success for, you know, for a case officer recruitment, intelligence production, you know, support to covert action, all of those things, they were off the charts but they were only off the charts because the officers that I had working for me. And I of course get credit for that, but I wasn't the leader that I thought I was. And so a part of this 360 feedback, we actually had a clinical psychologist who sat down with us to say, here's how to overcome your, you know, your weaknesses. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't in receive mode. <laughs> I wasn't prepared to accept the fact that I wasn't the leader that I thought I was right. until this empirical data that came from my superiors back in Washington, my contemporaries in the field and 
the three folks that worked for me. And it was pretty clear that all three of them were telling me the same message. You're not the leader you think you are and you have a lot to learn. Well, I did take that to heart. Um, I did do all the, you know, the self-improvement and, and listen to all the, you know, I, I read everything that I could get my hands on. And eventually I overcame my, myself. I had to get outside of my own ego. I had to get outside of my own uh, holier than thou um, approach to, to many things yeah, at that time. So moving, moving from the, from the kind of the, the troops into leading troops, was a little rough. Would, would you be comfortable me. talking a little bit more in depth about that? Was it that you were too abrasive or too introverted or um, what, what was sort of that like moment of reflection? Smoking Joe in the hallway, like knife handing people. Um, um, he thinks he knows everything. Um, ab probably a break. I'm, I'm blunt. I, I'm, I'm a blunt person. <laughs> and, and I, I actually respond better when someone just tells me, you know, you're an idiot as opposed to kind of talking around it. Right. Just, right. just tell me I'm an idiot and I'll fix that if I can. I might not agree with you, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll appreciate that. And well, maybe not, at, <laughs> maybe not at the moment I might not appreciate it, but yeah, abrasive, know it all. I was compared to whatever bad leader you've ever heard in your life. Uh, Pol Pot, uh, <laughs> um, Khan. I'm not joking. Gentlemen. So they were swinging for the fences. Yeah. That's a bit much. Yeah. It, it was, it was ugly. And, and I, I just remember the clinical psychologist coming up to me because uh, he had multiple students that he was observing in this particular course. And he comes up and he says, are you ready to listen? And of course I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to listen. And he's like, no, no, I don't think you understand. Are you ready to listen? And if you or any of your listeners can think of any story in the history of mankind where it started off with, are you, re are you ready to listen? <laughs> where it turned out, where it turned out well for the person that's not listening and it didn't. Um, and then, and I actually told this story um, as a part of my healing process, as a part of my learning process, as a part of my moving into leadership, I, told this story and um, it had to do with some advice that I got from my, from my ex-wife where she said, listening is not waiting for your turn to speak. Right. And that resonated with me so strongly. And it's something that I try to think about today. Listening is not waiting for your turn to speak and listening is tough, man. Mm -hmm. That's why I talk so much. So I don't have to listen. <laughs> um, Listening takes energy, takes a lot of energy, but it is so important. And people have asked me over the years, what's your superpower? And I said, well, I know what it is now. It's listening. I literally learned, I taught myself how to listen. I became an International Coaching Federation certified coach where you literally have to sit stock still. You're not a therapist or anything, but you have to learn not to be a part of the narrative. It's not about you. It's about the person that you're trying to heal. It's about the person that you're trying to talk to. And I just remember, even when I was in training at the farm, this one instructor who didn't use the words that those people used many years later, 
He said, Daryl, you have to turn that mirror around. You have to see this, this scenario from the perspective of the person that you're dealing with. And for the first time in my life, I actually took measured steps to do that. And like anything that I grab onto, I grabbed onto it with gusto and I improved. Do you think that's maybe something you brought with you from your background as a military briefer where you kind of stand behind the podium and you tell people what they need to know and now you're in a different you're as in a, in a leadership position it needs to be more of a two-way street. Um yeah, partially. I don't know if I've ever thought about it in those terms, but yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um it, that's honestly to me though, that's an amazing story because People quit jobs because of their bosses. They don't quit because of their pay. They don't quit because Absolutely. of benefits. They quit because of their bosses. And yep. and I believe everybody, if they took a minute, well, not a minute, like it's not easy. It, it's very hard for us uh, to to recognize that, you know, we have challenges, all of us in, in whatever area that is. Um, and I, I just, I think that's such a, an amazing testament to like your character and the fact that you 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 took that look at yourself, which it can, that that can suck. That that you know when we're like looking at ourselves, it's not a good feeling, yeah. Under the light of you know, under the, it can it can hurt. Honest, honestly, that was twenty years ago. Yeah, it is no less painful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I can hide it a little better than yeah, I did yeah. back then. But being told that you're not as good as you think you are mm-hmm. is still very um, humbling. Um, they were absolutely right. And it took me some time to realize that I could continue on in this, you know, this farce um, or I could genuinely try to change and be a better boss. And I know that I am because I, I, I'm still mentoring a lot of people and people still reach out to me, whether they're from my high school, college, military, or agency career that still rely on me for advice. And they, they know that I'm going to tell them what they need to know, not what they need to hear, but in a much less (laughs) abrasive. Um, But yeah, I, 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 I knew that that was it. That was for me. Um, 2000, 2000 to 2005 were huge for me uh, on a personal uh, personal growth. Daryl, I'll, I'll, I'll just share with you uh, this anecdote that uh, I, the reason why I tried so long to get you on this podcast is because I asked people about you and they told me he's a good person and he's an honest leader. And that, that's really the reason why I've been asking for so long to try to get you on this show. Right. And you know what? I, so when I left the agency in 2018, the first thing that I did was a podcast. Um, I did it because I thought it would be cool. It would be an opportunity for me to actually talk about my career in the intelligence community in a forum that I found interesting. And out of that, several things happened. Um, I kind of got used to doing podcasts and I enjoyed them, but then I felt that I'd done too many. So when you guys reached out the first time, I was like, I get yeah, it. I'm kind of, I'm kind of over that, but it's still great for 
explaining to folks who the agency is and how they do things and and don't believe everything that you read <laughs> don't accept um and i tell people don't accept everything that i'm telling you check my facts fact check me for sure go back and look at uh some of the things but i try to be as honest as as i can and i've learned even if you're giving hard news to someone who absolutely does not want to hear it it might take them a while but eventually they'll come back around and thank you or maybe they won't but you know that you've changed them in some way mm-hmm. and there's a very specific young man that i'm thinking of who came to the united states speaking no english learned english by joining the air force and then joining the fbi and then and then eventually joining cia who thought he was suited to be an operations officer I, I knew that he didn't have the skill set. I knew that he didn't have everything to do it. And it took me three years of battling this, this young man um, before um, he eventually just disregarded everything that I ever said. Fast forward five years after that assignment, he reaches out to me to thank me for being what he said was the only person who was ever honest with him. Now, I dis dis uh dis dissolved him basically i told him that certainly i wasn't the only one who was ever truthful with him but he did have leaders that were not upfront with him uh-huh. that weren't that weren't giving him the best advice for that individual uh-huh. not for the agency for this person right and that's what you have to be able to separate um and yeah he's he's a He's a he's a friend. He's someone that still still reaches out to me to check it, check up on me and to see how I'm doing now that I've gotten out. But it was also a very hard thing for him to come to grips with because he just knew he had what it took and um, sent him to specific training where he learned that he didn't. And it was it's hard. It's hard seeing the truth sometimes. But eventually he appreciated it and uh he's a very good man and a good father and husband and um you know it took him just like it took me time to get to that mm-hmm. i knew it would take him time mm-hmm. so after your um self improvement <laughs> part of your yeah. career um where where did you uh where did you get assigned afterwards so all of my last, so the last third of my career, I went from being station chief in East Africa to being the number two in Europe to running the training for three years. Um, and then back-to-back jobs, deputy director of the counterterrorism center to chief of Africa division to my final assignment, which was a domestic assignment um, where I was the, 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 the senior representative, the station chief. So they were all, they were all running huge major uh, offices and dealing with, you know, people in our government and in, and, and in other gov- governments as well. And so, and so what were you seeing from your point of view as the war on terror, you know, builds up and continues, Afghanistan happens, Iraq happens. And I mean, we all know the history, of course, and, and kind of how some of those things turned out. But I would be 
you moved up the fairly high up in the organization. I'd be really interested if you could share any of your insights of what happened throughout the course of the war. The war on terror? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, that's not over. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure. Like the nuclear race and cyber today, oh. I don't think terrorism is ever not going to be mm-hmm. a part of what the agency does, but it's not the only thing the agency does. And, you know, there are people who thought that the agency was so invested in in the CT that we lost sight of 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 our true, you know, of, of our true roots. Well, my argument was our true roots were the military. The Office of Strategic Services was, yes, a civilian service, but of course it was made up of people who are military and non-military that all went through training because they were heading out to, you know, defend our nation in the Italian theater, Europe, um, in Germany, Italy, Japan, and 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 uh, all through World War II. So we were always had boots on the ground from 1942 forward. And quite frankly, we're going to have boots on the ground in 2042. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it didn't change for me other than making sure that people recognize and understood that counterterrorism was important, but so was Russia, so was China, so was Iran, so was North Korea and proliferation and all the other things that were charged with um, with keeping tabs on. And I still speak in terms of we, as if the agency cares to you know anything about me anymore. I'm sure they they know who I am, but uh, I still speak in we just because. 30 years later, uh, it's kind of hard to remove that from your vocabulary. But the, when I'm saying we, I'm talking about CIA specifically. What was it like coming back and running the farm that now you're, I don't want to say the old guy, but you, you are the, the veteran, the, the experienced guy who's able to come back and you know share some of those experiences with a younger generation? It was probably my most challenging job. Now, Imagine being, you know, a case officer who now has an entire staff of people who are case officers or op support guys um, as your instructors and students who are all wanting to be what these instructors and the chief of training are. Type A personalities almost to a person. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> very set in their in their in their ways of, of doing things. And if you think managing um, you know 50 to 100 uh, case officers is an easy task, let me tell you, it is not. Um, but it was the funnest job I ever had. It was a job that allowed me to um, learn a whole lot about uh, things that were, that I just never came, you know, came across in, in, in my career at that point. So being, being the head of that institution was scary because, you know, you don't want it to fall apart. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. If anything ever happens. And I know Doug has been on the, has been on the show before. So um, I was Doug Wise's number, uh, number two. And then, as as Doug would do after after one one iteration 
of the training, he went to start uh, what became the, the Tradecraft and Training Division. So an entire new component was being created at the same time. Oh, yeah, he talked a little bit that, about that. that. I was asked that we were asked to revamp this iconic training that had existed for, you know, 60 years at that point. And so, yeah, it was it was scary, um, but it was rewarding. It was I would think by now that those folks that went through training in my early days are now reaching the point where they're now going out as deputy chiefs of station and as chief of stations. And if they remember anything uh, that I wanted to get across to them, that this is never about you. This is always about protecting our nation. This is always about protecting the sources of our information. This is always about someone else. And I would tell all to a person during the hiring process, it's about you. And the next time it's about you will be at your retirement party. Mm-hmm. And if you can't <laughs> live with that, if you can't live with that, and you can't deal with that, then you're not the right person to be here. Mm-hmm. And we can't use you and don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Mm-hmm. And, and I did have that conversation uh, quite a bit. And so hopefully that that generation, which is now probably entering the, you know, the mid careers um, that they have, you know, held true to the training that they received and not just the training, but the, the, the intent and the, the, the humanity of human. And I think people forget that humanity has to be a part of human intelligence. Mm-hmm. These are people's lives that we're dealing with. That's the part of Hollywood that I, I, I just abhor is that they make the CIA have their assets as you know disposable, right? As as napkins, just you know, just use them and throw them away. Absolutely not. They would die for us. We would die for them. And so that's that's what I'm hoping those folks who are going to be the next generation of, of, uh, of covert operators are still doing and still teaching. Yeah. Had, had training, uh, changed much from the time you went to the time you arrived, Uh, you know, when you went back. Um, Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's constantly evolving. It's ever evolving, but what hasn't changed is human nature. Mm -hmm. Human nature hasn't changed. So that aspect of the training in terms of how do you tap into someone's ego? How do you tap into someone's, you know, fears and desires? How do you tap into that person in a way that's going to get them to do what you need them to do? Because at the end of the day, it is about manipulation, but but manipulation doesn't have to be a negative thing. Babies know how to know how to manipulate before they can even speak their first words. And if you don't, if you've ever been around an infant and they can play their parents off against each other, <laughs> that is manipulation. That is in our DNA. It is right. brought to us. The agency just uses that and hones that and trains that in a way that uh, allows it to do it for the, you know, to, for the greater good. And who gets to define the greater good? We do. Right. And, you know, our greater good is in our best interest. And by our, I mean the United States government. I mean the American people. And I was never asked ever in 
28 years to do anything that was against my moral compass, against my upbringing. And Jim and Becky, those my parents, would expect a certain thing from me. And so kindness was always my approach. Now, I've been able to kind of refine that since I've retired and I've given a TED talk about it, you know, speak less, listen more and choose kindness. But kindness can change lives. And I hopefully, if I'm ever remembered for anything, that will be it. Well, it's probably what made you a, a effective ops officer too, Daryl. Um, I, I, I want to take empathy, a, a- Empathy is important. Empathy is important, Jeff. Yeah. A, a little bit of a, uh, this is not really um, so much a training issue as much as, as a recruitment issue, but I want to touch upon it with you because we had spoken about it previously. Uh, you told me about some experiences- uh, where the um, there are some recruiting issues um, with black Americans who feel that uh, there's, for historical reasons, things that factually did happen in our past, um, you know, black people are can be, in some instances, be distrustful of the federal government, particularly a organization like the CIA. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, um, if there's anything we can do as a country to recruit better, or I shouldn't say recruit better, but to reach out to some of those populations that feel disenfranchised. I think the agency is doing a better job of that. I think the intelligence community is doing a better job of that, but we're still mistrusted within Brown and black communities. Um, I volunteer with a group called peace for kids. It's a youth advocacy group, youth in foster care, and I also sit on their board now. And one of my dearest friends is her parents immigrated from, from Central America. And so for the first three years of me um, being a volunteer at Peace for Kids, um, I couldn't share with them that I was CIA because I was, still, I was still active. And so once I retired and I was actually able to share more, you know, more about my past, she finally came up to me one day, and this is a woman that has now known me for three years mm -hmm. as just Daryl, another volunteer every Saturday to, oh my God, you were CIA? Um, my family's from El Salvador and telling me all these horrible stories about CIA and her country and all this kind of stuff. So that's what we're dealing with. And in Los Angeles, there are people here who still think the CIA is responsible for bringing crack mm -hmm. to, to Los Angeles. So, Jack, I believe the specific story you were talking about is I was at a CIA career fair booth at a historically black, uh, historically black college and university down in the Hampton Roads area. And there was a young man who kept walking back and forth by the booth, but he never he never approached. So when the when the kind of the audience died down, I saw him and I waved him over and I said, well, Obviously, you have questions or you're, you're interested, but you didn't want to come up and no preamble, no nice to meet you. How are you doing? He looks at me and says, how can you work for an organization that did experiments on black people? Boom. I mean, that's <laughs> that's, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, right. And I, I said, you know what? I said, I hear you. I said, but you do understand that happened before even I was born. The CIA of nineteen of the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties is not the CIA today. Right. If you want to talk about what it's like to be a black man in the CIA today, 
we can talk for the next couple of hours. We can talk for the next couple of weeks. The opportunities are so amazing that anyone who doesn't consider U.S. government work, you're you're missing out. Mm-hmm. You don't have to believe everything about you know. I I told my girlfriend that I I, I bleed red, white, and blue. And that concerned her at first. She had never met anybody who said they bleed red, white, and blue. She didn't know what that meant. My point is, I'm a constitutionalist. Mm. I believe that our founding fathers were absolutely right. Not absolute in the terms of absolute, but they were more right than they were wrong. That the, the principles that they created and that they made were not their own. They got it from... Plato and Stoicism and a whole bunch of other stuff. But at the end of the day, they were right. Mm. They were right. And to form, you know, to a more perfect union, that's always striving towards. And if black folks are not going to be involved in that process, then of course things aren't going to change. If brown people aren't going to be involved in that process, they're not going to change. Everybody has to recognize that our differences are our strength, mm-hmm. not our weakness. Mm-hmm. Our differences are what makes us who we are. And if you can't embrace that, if you can't recognize that, if you can't, if you see woke as a negative, then you don't have empathy. If you think that telling the truth about who we are as a nation and what we've done, then I, I don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm an intelligence analyst to my heart. Right. That's what I started off as. I look at just give me the facts and I'll figure out all the all the emotion part of it, emotion part of it later. Mm-hmm. Not saying that I believe and trust everything that's being told to me. I fought the system. Mm-hmm. I got the scars proven that I fought the system, but I won more battles than I lost on the inside because I knew I was right. Right. And I knew I was pushing for right. And once you have right on your side, right is might. Yeah. How, you know, what, for people out there who are considering, like, are thinking maybe the CIA is for me, what are, you know, we, what are the different types of jobs that people can do in the agency? Well, the agency literally is its own world. Whatever job exists out there um, in any, in any world, whether you're in facilities, (laughs) whether you are a, a, a nuclear engineer whether you're a statistician, whether you have a political science degree, it doesn't matter. They will find a job for you. There's a job for you already in the career field that you're already interested in, but you're only doing it for a very niche um, purpose. And it's not for everyone. I've had 27 address changes in 58 years on this planet. Mm -hmm. 22 of those since I graduated college in 1986. Mm -hmm. It is not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. It is not for everyone. And quite frankly, my message to folks when they said everybody, everybody should do an assignment in the war zones. No, every one of us has met someone that should absolutely never, ever, ever (laughs) be sent to the the war zone. It's not for everyone, but for those people who found their place and that newspaper article that I answered changed everything about my path. I went from being a happy, you know, um, soon to be successful 
uh, about to be promoted to captain, which I turned down in order to leave to join the agency. Now, I don't think I would have done a full 20 like mm-hmm. my dad did, mm-hmm. but it would have got me moving in the right direction. Intelligence was really comfortable for me. I literally begin every day or uh, end every day or begin every morning doing puzzles. Mm-hmm. I love puzzles. CIA is dealing with the most intricate and dangerous puzzles that mankind can throw at it mm-hmm. and solve them all the time every day why because we have smart people we have people people who are trained we have people who have oversight we have people who have uh attorneys and a lot of them making sure that we're doing things the right way there are no rogue elephants in the agency that's all hollywood created and and uh perpetuated we kind of skipped over this part, but like when you when you joined the agency, what did your parents think? Um, because I had just gone straight from military intelligence in the in the Air Force to uh-huh. the CIA, um, they know that I wanted to I wanted to continue to live abroad and uh-huh. and do things like that. So it didn't it didn't surprise them. Um, I think they were. I mean, they were really proud when I when I made it to, you know, to the flag ranks, when I was uh, promoted into the SIS, uh, the general ranks. Um, and I think they were proud of everything that, that they, you know, that they witnessed. So, yeah, I think they were happy for me. That's fantastic. Um, and so uh, what, uh, where were we? The, um, so, uh, so after the farm, then what? Because that was another big step for you, right? After the farm. It, yeah. So after that was to, to Washington for two years. That was when I was the the the, the deputy director of the counterterrorism center. Okay. And then what I think was, I mean, it was my dream job, chief of Africa division. And I can say um, that I was the last chief Africa division. But that's only because now the Africa Division is the Africa Mission Center. Uh, the divisions don't exist anymore, and that happened all in the last couple of years of me leaving, uh, leaving CIA. Um, so, okay, so we'll, we'll talk real quick, but then about the directory uh, or uh, deputy director of CTC. How, yep. how uh, what did you think when you got that, and how did you roll into that position? Um, that was. <laughs> so the 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 guy that was the director of the counterterrorism center at um it was the third time I had worked for him. He was the deputy chief of the the Somali working group um when I was in between my first assignment and 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 heading out to had heading out to the Midwest and then he was a very senior officer throughout my career in Africa division. So quite frankly, everywhere I served in Africa, I, I've worked for him. But the third time, um, the job that I went into was a job that was created much, many years after the counterterrorism center. And it was recreated in response to the inspector general's um, report on the coast bombing. Uh-huh. So it was a brand new position. I was only the second person that had ever gone in, gone into that, gone into that role. So 
it was, you know, creating a new position. I knew that I would, when I got in into that job, which had been vacant for about a year, um, no matter what I did, I was going to be stepping on one of three toes, uh-huh. uh, three feet, um, three pairs of feet, excuse me. And so I was kind of like the, uh, I'm, I'm the warm and fuzzy guy because the de- the director was not, <laughs> and he's a good man. He's a good man and I love him, but he brought me in because of my empathy. He brought me in because of my kindness. He brought me in because of my reputation. He brought me in because he knew I could do the job. And my job was, was keeping everyone focused on, on, on the mission but also focusing on the people. I was the people person. He was the mission people. And how long did you spend there? That was about 15 months. Okay. And then, um, and then the uh, deputy director of operations or director of the national clandestine service, I think they're interchangeable in the, in that, in that era um, was a good friend also uh, who's now passed Frank Archibald and um, Frank called me. I know the date three June and offered me the the job of Africa division. And I was, I went, I left deputy director to take over, to take over that role. And um, unfortunately that got truncated. I didn't even spend a full year in that job because uh, director Brennan had started a process where he was doing a reorganization and I was not asked to stay around to be the head of the Africa mission center because <laughs> for several reasons, but let's just say uh, the director and I had philosophical differences on, um, on the direction he was going, but I was not one of those people who was going to stand in his way. In fact, I did everything that I could to make sure that Africa division was going to be the one leading the charge and the changes, but uh, that didn't translate to him keeping me around. So, so when they, when, when a new director comes in, Mm -hmm. then is it standard for them to sort of clean house to only have people who, who agree with their vision? No, not at all. No, no, that was, that was, I mean, I mean, he was the director when I was the deputy director of the counterterrorism center. Saw him three days a week for, right. for fifteen. So he knew who I was. Right. He was not, and he approved. Of course, he had to approve me being chief of Africa division. Right. Um, but what he didn't, uh, I guess, what he wasn't prepared for was someone to actually question him on on his premise. I see. And his. And his premise was that we're now living in the most dangerous time that we've ever lived in the history of man. And I, I didn't believe that then, and I don't believe it now. Right. This was the modernization process, right? That was very Correct. controversial. Correct. Uh, 2000, 2014, 2015 is when that process was being get, was beginning to launch, yes. And, I mean, can you sort of give us an example or show us what it looks like where he thinks that it's the most dangerous time for humanity or for humans and, and how that would manifest or how, how, you know, what he would do to prepare for that or whatever. Well, I mean, obviously what he thought would prepare us was, was the reorganization and listen, Africa division 
Africa's a big continent, but in terms of CIA, it's it's one of the smaller components mm-hmm. on the on the operational side. Um, and there are there are benefits, but there are also downsides to that. The benefit is as a young officer, I was involved with virtually everything. Um, from the moment I hit the ground in November of 1992 to when I left the continent in 2007. Um, So you got steeped in some of the most intricate, sensitive, and quite frankly, amazing operations on the planet. So um, I just had something delivered. Nice. where was I? Oh, so I just didn't believe that we're more safe than we were during the Vietnam era, the Korean era, World War One and Two, and that was only in the in the twentieth century. I'm not even talking about you know five hundred years ago when basically everybody was hacked to death um, or stabbed to death, right? Or whatever it happened to be. It's no way that the world is more dangerous. It's only more dangerous or appears to be more dangerous because everybody has one of these. Everybody has this thing we call a cell phone, but quite frankly, is not just a cell phone. It's everything to us. All of our data is in there, all of our likes and fears and all of that. And quite frankly, I can do real time right now and find out what's going on in Kisnau or in Cartagena mm-hmm. or wherever in the world you happen to be, mm-hmm. I can tap in and figure out what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Does that make it more dangerous? Mm, I don't think so. I think it makes it more. It, it, uh, it exposes more, all more, of us to more, a more accessible. I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Could you, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much, your, I mean, some of this is public, but I mean, what was, could you lay out a little bit of the, what that modernization process was like, what, for instance, the Africa division was versus how it became the African mission center. I, what, like organizationally, what, what were the differences or the changes that were made? You, you know, I have, listen, I have a lot of respect for John Brennan. John Brennan was a good director. John Brennan made some decisions that I'm sure were against his his personal um, his personal preferences, mm-hmm. and so I I got to give him that. Um, and the discussions that he and I and he, he and I had were were more personal than they were uh, on the pro- professional front because I was a part of a, a I was part of the director's leadership seminar where he bounced off a lot of ideas for modernization off of this group of twenty. Uh, for one, two, and three-star generals, you know, for lack of a better uh, comparison. And I don't think he got the response out of us collectively as a unit as he was anticipating. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of back and forth with him um, long before the modernization even began. So I had that experience in my mind. And I, I yeah, I don't, I don't want to touch on, touch on modernization because okay. quite frankly, it takes about seven years if you're looking at uh, organizational change, it takes about seven years, and we're at that point right now. And I've been gone for four, so I can't speak to right. what he what he envisioned and what he had in mind was actually successful. And I any to anybody to wish that for that to fail, sure, 
is crazy. Only wishing for wishing harm on our on our country. So right. I don't know if I can really speak to that yet. Fair enough. Um, how about that? Um, I mean, before we talk about your retirement and your you know post uh, service years, um, I would like to hear you know just your thoughts about that that year you spent running Africa Division and what what it was sort of like sitting on top of that. Um, now seeing all of these agency personnel working in all of your former former haunts, for, former alleyways and streets that you used to walk. Every day I felt blessed. Every day I felt excited. Every day I felt that it was, I think I, think I mentioned it to you earlier, if, if literally if I had died on the day that I became um, uh here, here. I'm getting a refill. <laughs> if 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 I had died on the day one of me being Chief AF, I know I'd be in heaven because I was so happy about um getting to that that point. Um and you know, I was when I joined the agency, I had only uh I knew I wanted to go to East Asia. I knew I wanted to do EA. I grew up in Japan. I had served in Korea as an adult. And my first three months at um my first three months at at CIA was on the North Korea desk. So for me, I was going to East Africa. I didn't want to be the black guy going to Africa. But then I met Bill Mosby. Bill Mosby if you close your eyes and envision the great white hunter, you know, handlebar mustache. And yes, he had one. And, but this man knew everything about Africa. This man knew every leader. He knew the history of everything. He knew, he knew all the people in his component. And I'm not talking somebody standing behind him and say, Hey, Daryl, this is Jack and David coming up. They serve here and that. No. He knew these people. He knew their spouses. He knew their children. He even knew some of the pets. And I was just blown away <laughs> by Buana. Buana is the reason that I joined Africa Division. Buana is the reason why I I got over myself and ended up being the black dude going going to Africa. And I thank him all the time for giving me that opportunity and having that experience. It's so cool, Daryl. And then you hit that point, I guess maybe it was because, well, I mean, you tell me if it was during that modernization process, it was it time for your uh, retirement and you felt like I, I kind of. Yeah. You know, I, I was, listen, I was, I was going through a separation and divorce at the time. I didn't want to go back overseas. The only job that I ever wanted and didn't get, I had bid on and got beat out twice. I didn't want to bid on it a third time because I felt if I didn't get it, then I'd leave disgruntled. But one of my, my mentors, um, and quite frankly, to this day, he's still one of my dearest friends, um, told me, you'll know when it's time for you to retire. I'm like, what kind of advice is that? <laughs> you'll, you'll just know. And sure enough, when the the bid list, that's the assignments that are coming up that you can that you can bid on for your next for your next tour, it came out and I wasn't that excited. There were a couple of jobs on there that were that were interesting, 
I'm an Athens, Georgia guy. So I thought it might be fitting to to end my end my career in, in Athens, Greece for, you know, just for a minute. That job was that job was open, but nothing else really grabbed me. And it was the first time where I didn't look at something. So, oh, I can go here. I can visit that. I can do that. And I just knew. And I had about a year and a half from the time that I didn't bid to when I walked out the door to get my mind prepared for that transition out the door. And then what was it like for you when you did transition out that door? I mean, you served, you know, pre 9-11 and then really through the bulk of the war on terror. I mean, that was, that's a lot. Right. It was easy. It was it was seamless. And people ask me if I miss it. I, I don't. I miss the people. Uh-huh. I miss the camaraderie. I miss the, um, you know, I just miss the love that I felt in that building because we were in the trenches together, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I don't regret it. I did everything that I wanted to do. Um, and I did it the way my parents would expect me to do it mm-hmm. with dignity and with, with, you know, just, just do good, you know? So that's what I tried to do. I tried to do good. It was easy for me. And the director at the time was uh, Gina Haspel. And I remember she asked me, she said, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, boss, I have no idea, but I'm not going to do, you know, A, B or C. Uh Well, (laughs) um, a month after I I left, um, I had done two of the three. <laughs> um, one of one of them was um, one of them was working in Hollywood on uh, season two of Condor, which is on Epics. Um, I consulted on season two, and then I started working for ABC News as one of their contributors. So I told her I wasn't going to be on the news, and I told her I wasn't going to do Hollywood stuff. But <laughs> my, girl, my girlfriend, my girlfriend's an actor. My girlfriend is been in the business for a long time. She's a fantastic storyteller. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Um, So I knew with her writing skills and my knowledge of how the intelligence community and how how the real world works would be a pretty powerful combination. And we're now four years into our our collaboration and um, starting to make a couple of moves here. And maybe you all will hear some stuff in the future, maybe not. I hope everybody so. We hope so. Well, everybody comes to Hollywood with a dream. And the sure. thing is, I lived my dream. Yeah. My dream was the life that I lived. Right. And I loved everything about it. So right. it happens great. If it doesn't, I'm, I'm okay with that as well. But I do think Hollywood could do a better job of depicting CIA writ large. Because if you think about it, Outside of Bourne, which of course is an assassin, and Bond, which of course is just a figment of uh, Ian Ian Fleming's imagination, every person that you've seen in a movie that CIA is literally the most despicable character <laughs> mm-hmm. in the entire cast. Mm-hmm. So when people meet me, they're like, "But you're you're too nice to be CIA." <laughs> <clears throat> All the CIA folks that I work with were nice. Almost all of them. There are very few assholes. Now they have them. Don't, <laughs> don't, 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 don't think that they don't. Right. They are so few and far between that I am just blown away by how different we're depicted 
and how we really are. So I'm trying to tell stories that are authentic to my experiences in. And my experiences were diverse. I've had female station chiefs. I've had black bosses. I've had white bosses. I've had, I mean, you name it. There's not very few experiences that I didn't have and all of them were positive and very few of them are depicted on anything we're seeing uh, nowadays in the espionage genre. I mean, without giving away your uh, your screenplays, I mean, what are some of the types of spy stories you'd like to tell? Honestly, they're not even spy stories. They're human interest stories. They're, they're mothers and daughters and generational, um, you know, generational stories. There's one, it's a working title, is Legacy, and it's about a a mom who is a collection management officer, a CMO, a reports officer, who has a daughter who becomes a case officer. And there's a natural friction mm -hmm. between case officers and reports officers. It's always existed. It always should. Um, because when you're always on the same sheet of music, you start to, you know, you can get, you know, tunnel vision. Um, but it's also a story about mothers and daughters and the friction that is there sometime. So yes, it's about CIA, but it's more about mom and daughter. And of course, the, the, the granddaughter who through the arc of the first season recognizes that not only is her mom, but her grandma are both kick-ass CIA officers. So those kind of, those kind of stories. Daryl, I mean, yeah, that, that actually resonates. Like, uh, I don't know if you knew her, but we uh, interviewed on the show a ways back Erin O'Lallan and uh, her mother was in the agency before she became a case officer. And there's, there's oh, a, no. All right. There's a little yeah. bit of that there. Yeah. Right. I'll have to go back and listen to our episode. Yeah. I, I would be happy to introduce you guys if you're, if you're interested. Uh, right. What, what else, what else uh, has your post-retirement journey take you, taken you on? Uh, what other journeys have you been on since then? So I'm the, I'm the chief operating officer of a, of a niche boutique security firm called Mosaic. Um, we mostly deal with uh, high net worth individuals. Um, we are dealing with some governments. I, we specifically haven't sought any, you know, U.S. government type contracts because it's just it, it's it's so it's so intense and so involved that um, that's not really the way we want to go. But uh, um, you know, just in the last fifteen months, Mosaic has taken me back to Africa. For the first time since I left the agency, it's taking me to Europe and London and India. So I still get to travel and meet with interesting people and help resolve um, people who are kind of trapped up in circumstances beyond their control. It's not CIA, mm -hmm. but it's kind of similar. Mm -hmm. And of course, they now know my background because I came out from undercover. So that kind of puts people at ease when they when they realize that I've been here and done that kind of before. So there's Mosaic. Um, I mentioned earlier that I volunteer and I'm on the board of a group called Peace for Kids, mm -hmm. where a part of Mosaic also uh, is involved with um, human trafficking or countering human trafficking. So all of my worlds are kind of inner, are, are intermingled, whether it's the security, Peace for Kids, and and sadly, the the feeder pipeline for human trafficking in the United States 
taps into a lot of children who are caught up in the in the foster care in the foster care system. And I'm using those same stories and creating some espionage themed uh, type stuff. So almost everything that I do ties back into one of the four uh, areas, foster youth, security, entertainment, and not entertainment in the sense that that is entertaining, but more educating, I guess, should be the um, the way I could could do it. And then I sit on a number of boards um, just because I'm interested in in Africa writ large. I think Africa is is the future that that maybe in 1960 was envisioned. Yeah. But right now, the number of economies that are growing there, the the rare earth minerals that are involved in net is a, a is an organization that I'm on on the board. I'm a part of the Black Professionals in the Intelligence or in International Affairs (BPIA). Um, I just I do the things that I want to do now. I work with the people that I want to work with, yeah. and and a lot of them is giving back to the the Black community and trying to do things that I couldn't do when I was living when I was living abroad, like volunteering my time. And um, that's, yeah, that's where I am. Dave, do we have any uh, questions from viewers? We do have some questions. We have some great questions. First, let me get the one from Patreon. That While I we uh, wait, Daryl, I just want to tap into that, one of that last points that you made there. You know, West Africa had this moment, I guess, of opportunity that you mentioned, post-colonialism. And, um, you know, things didn't go the way probably anyone wanted them to. But it seems that now we may be at this at the, a similar moment, these sorts of rising economies, um, getting interested mm-hmm. in, in the tech field. Um, yep. What do you think? Where, what do you think uh, the potential future could be for West Africa in the next, let's say, 25 to 50 years? Not even West Africa. I'm talking about the entire continent. Now, listen, Black Panther was released today, so I think I'd be <laughs> remiss. I think I'd be remiss in not mentioning the Wakanda. Now, it's not going to be Wakanda, but people need to recognize that that continent has been kind of sidelined yeah. for a long time. East Asia was sidelined for a long time. And now, if you look at the economies that are growing there, I think that's what we're going to see in Africa over the next 25 to 50 years. Economic growth that cannot be ignored by the rest of the world and investment and investment and investment is going to be the the result you think there could be like a uh like they call south korea like the tiger of asia you think there could be a tiger of west africa that that that, that could um um yes i think american express has been inside of ghana for maybe 10 or 15 years now there are examples of 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 businesses that recognize long before you know long before now that africa is the way they want to they they want to go but I still think there's a lot of trepidation. Mm. Um, if you look at what's going on in the Tigray with the Tigray people in Ethiopia right now, when I joined the agency in 1990, um, the end of what was then the longest civil war in Africa happened, where Eritrea and Ethiopia were 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 where Eritrea was separated from Ethiopia, and became its own country, ending a two decades long civil war. Um, but now it's gone back to that. Somalia. We went into Somalia because of the famine. Now we're seeing that again. So people are afraid that that's going to that's going to be it. But right. don't judge 
the entire continent by what's going on in very small or relatively small areas in, com in comparison to the rest of the continent, judge each nation by its own potential and it's, it's wide open. What do we got? Okay. Um, so, uh, this is from Isaac. Uh, first off, happy veterans day and thank you all for your service. Uh, thanks Isaac. China has been making a lot of investment in Africa for technology and, uh, and minerals by building factories, contributing to local economies, giving low skill and low paid jobs while Chinese figures hold higher positions. But is it possible they're setting up these communities for a debt trap? If that's true, is the CIA taking this seriously? China wants to control the tech infrastructure in Africa. And if they get Taiwan, they will control the world's biggest supplier of microchips. So this is a potential problem for the whole world. Um, is there anything that can be done to keep Africa out of the PRC's hands? I, I think the PRC is going to keep Africa out of its hands. So the, the, the Chinese are not they're not like the United States and the Americans. We're not, when we go into a country, we try to engage with the communities in which we're, we're moving. We don't isolate ourselves. We don't, you know, card in ourselves off. And that's what China has done uh, on the African continent and, and everywhere they go. A uh, quick example in Nairobi, there was a Chinese restaurant that refused to serve Kenyans. Now, <laughs> I think this is crazy. They literally said no Africans allowed in this restaurant. Of course, that restaurant was burned to the ground. Right. Okay? <laughs> that, that is the mentality of China. They will come in and and now they do give a lot. I, I will not take that from them. They give a lot, but they're taking more than they're giving. And they're just not ever going to be, they're not winning hearts and minds right. on the ground right. in Africa. So and, and, I'm not as concerned about Africa, China in Africa as as many others are. And they're they're gonna find they're gonna find the thing out that every other country that has ever tried to expand anywhere learned along the way is money does not buy love. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so Isaac, oh please, Isaac, I hope we answered your question. Uh, travel with love. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you uh, and all for your service. Well, thanks. We appreciate that, David Maynard. Um, thanks, buddy. What is your favorite depiction of the CIA in movies? Huh. I don't know what this favorite depiction of the CIA is. It's certainly not Zero Dark Thirty or uh, whatever that debacle from um, uh, for Benghazi, Benghazi was. But there is one story... Um, that I always, when people say, give us an example of what a case officer, what a case officer does. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman played the role of a German intelligence That's a officer. That's a great movie. Yeah. In a movie, in a movie called A Most Wanted Man. There's a scene in the final third of the movie where he has to convince this very reluctant agent source from going back in one more time in doing what what he needs them to do that was as close to being a case officer as i've seen depicted in in anything so if you haven't seen it watch the movie um it's it's a, it, it's beautifully done and the thing about that movie is you never know whether that guy is really a threat 
that is implied throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're dealing. You deal with a lot of ambiguity mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you can't deal with ambiguity, if you need concrete yes or no, you, you can't be in the intelligence world. That's really not the world we live in. The mm -hmm. world is great. So yeah, most wanted, most wanted man. It's a good, yeah, I love that movie. Yep. Um, Ohms, thank you very much for the donation. Um, Joe's gotcha. Uh, thank you very much. Did you ever work with the Army Central Spike Unit in the 90s? <laughs> I did. I haven't heard that name in forever. I did in uh, in Somalia, as a matter of fact. Yes. Um, Mustafa, thank you very much for the donation. How in the world can West Africa be, uh, be stabilized uh, after seeing what's going on there? I mean, West Africa is huge. West Africa is the United this is the size of the United States of America. So I don't think that's there's not enough specificity right. for me to respond. Senegal, Senegal is has been stable since independence. It's one of the few countries. Yes, there's a rebellion in the Casamance that's been going on for a long time, but overall, historically, it's been one of the more stable places. Ghana has been stable. There are when I joined the CIA in 1990, there was that many examples, zero, of power being handed over from one leader to another through the ballot box. Now there are more examples on the continent than more examples of that being done. South Africa, Ghana, Tanzania, Kenya, South Africa, um, Senegal, uh, and I know I'm missing Liberia. I know I'm missing others. It's happening, Nigeria even. It's happening Things are changing. Things are getting better, but they're not going to change overnight. They're going to change throughout our lifetime. Invest in West Africa. Invest in North Africa. Invest in the continent. Yes. I just got a hot tip on a Singalese restaurant in <laughs> Uptown Manhattan yesterday. I can't wait to go try oh, it. Yeah. Jabajan, yep. man. Yeah. Yep, that's Jabajan. Yes. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yes. yes. So uh, the best food I ever had in my life, Senegal. It's a rice with a shrimp in it, right? Yes, rice and fish. Rice and yep. fish. Oh, man. Um, Connor Halsey, thank you very much. Uh, could you go into the specifics of what uh, a CTC uh, SO does? I've seen the name a lot, but never actually got it, uh, got it how their mission was different from broader CTC other than they worked AQ post 9-11. Mm, sorry, dude. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can answer that one. Okay. I, I apologize. No. Okay. Thanks, Connor. We appreciate it. If you have another question you want to ask, throw it up there real quick. Um, travel with love. Thank you very much. Thousands of years of peace and one billion scientists. Um, I think a, a, a statement. Um, and uh, Michelle Allen. Thank you very much. Uh, oh wow. Thank you very much for the very generous donation. Happy Veterans Day to all of you. I salute all of you in many ways. You serve our country. That's very Thank kind. You, uh, let's see if anything else came in real quick. Um, well, it looks like we got, we got some spam bots in there. Uh, I think that's it. But um, okay. Do do spam bots actually ask questions? No, no. They uh, they they're. they're <laughs> They're 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 trying to hook us up with lovely young women. Oh, yes, aren't they all? Yes. Um, 
so guys, uh, next Friday, we're going to have Matt DeVost on the show, uh, cyber, um, computer dude, uh, actually been kind of on the ground floor for it, um, from a DOD perspective. Um, so we'll have him here next Friday. Daryl, any final thoughts and, and let people know where they can find you if they want to, um, have you come as a speaker or they want to get in, in touch with Mosaic? I mean, wh- where can people go to find you? The, the quickest way is find me on LinkedIn, Daryl M. Blocker. Um, and you can email me at dmb at mosaicsec.com. That's M-O-S-A-I-C-S-E-C.com. Um, yeah, those are probably the two easiest way, LinkedIn or just hitting me up on the on an email. All right. Outstanding. Um, Daryl, thanks so much for your time and, and, you know, spending some, some of your Friday with us. Yeah. And Izzy, thank you very much for that last minute I, donation. I, we really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I, I did. I did. I did miss one thing that I wanted to cover. I've talked about sure. peace for kids and I've talked about my volunteer work, but if you all are avid podcast listeners, there's a fantastic podcast called bonus babies that is done by um, a form, a, a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate. These are people who are involved in the foster care world, and she tells stories from the perspective of people who are in the foster care system, whether it's the child or the attorney or the educator. It's a fantastic podcast, Um, and she's also my creative partner and girlfriend, so I'm invested in it financially, I'm invested in it emotionally, and I'm invested in the future of our nation, which is always our children. And those in foster care need us more than anyone else. Right. And can you, will you uh, give that podcast one more time? Bonusbabies.org. Okay. Bonusbabies.org. Yes. Um. Jane, Jane Amelia Larson is the host and she just completed her second season. And um, it's always fascinating and great stories and some of the things that these these people have been through parallels and matches anything that any vet has ever seen in their life and they didn't bring any of it on themselves right that's the right yeah. right yeah uh, daryl thanks again man really appreciate your time Gentlemen, thank you thank yeah you. we deeply appreciate you we would love to have you on anytime and you know like uh, let us know when, when you've got stuff going on. If this comes out, you know, if you got something coming out in Hollywood, let us know. We're going to, we'll plug it. Oh, absolutely. All right. Maybe a couple of tickets to the premiere. That'd be cool. <laughs> the flights. <laughs> no, all, right. All, right. all right, guys. All right. We'll see, we'll see all of you next Friday. Take care, everyone. Thanks everybody. All right. With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.